0: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome
1: to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen back with me. And this is a new season special. Uh, We're going to be later on looking ahead to the new campaign. Obviously, it's not very long since the last one ended, but... uh, out. The Championship League will be underway. We're actually recording it just before it starts. Before we uh, look at the new season, we're going to go through uh, your emails. We've had a lot of emails actually build up. Of course, last week I interviewed Stephen Hendry, so he didn't read me out then. So if yours isn't read out, it's nothing personal. It's just, uh, you know, otherwise it'll be a six-hour podcast. Uh, so the first one is Rob Dunn. He says, hi, Dave. First of all, love the podcast. It keeps me great company on my runs along the wonderful northeast coastline. I hope Michael doesn't take the wrong. way but before I listen to your podcast, i have never heard of him. <laughs> Just wondering if Michael would <laughs> give us a bit of background on himself, how he
2: came to get involved in snooker, etc. Keep up the good work. Over to you. Yeah, he's obviously lived a sheltered life. Well, I mean, I've, I've been involved in snooker since 1997. Um, I started off working on the Irish Masters doing radio and newspaper reports, and then the following year I started going to the World Championship, and indeed was there every year until, for obvious reasons, didn't go this year. And I've just been involved in all kinds of ways. I mean, I write a lot for snooker scene, done some commentary, um, written for a lot of newspapers uh, on the game, and been involved also as a press officer and MC. So I've done, you know, most roles in the game from time to time. And uh, obviously, as you know, Dave, I made uh, sort of occasional appearances with you over the years on this. And then we had a chat, didn't we, when lockdown came along and we thought, well, why don't we sort of do this every week? And that's why we've been doing it on that basis ever since. So, yeah, I've been around the game uh, a long time. This is, uh, this is just one of my many outlets over the decades. Yeah, and you, you're well-known
1: in Irish radio as well. It's fair to say you, have, you hosted the uh, Saturday afternoon football programme for, for many years.
2: Yeah, for 14 years I presented the um, Premier League coverage. And uh, that was when I was with Today FM, which is, I suppose for British people, it would be a bit like kind of a cross between, I guess, Virgin Radio and Talk Sport. So, I was on there for a long time. I was doing that. I also covered the Ireland team at that time. So, I went to the World Cup in 2002 and the Euros in 2012 and did our coverage from there and covered all sorts of other sports um, on there. So, when he says the Northeast Coast, I guess he's not meaning the Northeast Coast of Ireland. <laughs> no. So, uh, yeah. so, that's basically where I've, where I've come from on this. Okay. Neil Harrison writes just
1: to follow on from your top 10 Thomas podcast from the past couple of weeks. It was interesting to hear the Mercantile Credit Classic mentioned, as this was my second-earliest snooker memory. It was 1987, Stephen Hendry beat Sylvina Francisco 5-0. Incidentally, I've recently started my own blog, Right On Cue snooker blog, and I mentioned this match in my first-ever blog. Uh, You can check that out, obviously, online. For the the record, my top three tournaments are... I'm going to do this in reverse order, actually. Uh, Three, the UK Championship. It's great to have another tournament with a longer format. I dislike the shorter format we have now, but I do think the York Barbican is a great venue. Number two, the Grand Prix. It always seemed to be on during the October school holidays in the 80s and 90s. And it it was the first event I went to in person when it was the Skoda Grand Prix in Sunderland in 1995. Number one, the World Championship. I've been to the Crucible every year since 1998. Same subject, this uh, top 10 uh, tournament. Alpha Bonzi, uh, now a regular correspondent. Um, he said, before I get into the top 10, A quick point on Michael's question as to why the planned world match play revival in 2004 never went ahead. Apparently, and he doesn't give any source for this, but I've got no reason to disbelieve me either. He said apparently it was because Matchroom, pre the World Snooker Takeover, were unable to guarantee Sky TV, Ronnie O'Sullivan's participation. He was then world number one and world champion. The slot in the calendar eventually went to the British Open on Eurosport. Uh, that gave me a couple of ideas for your next podcast topics. Number one, the depressing Rodney Walker chairmanship of World Snooker, which nearly saw the game die <laughs> death pre Barry Hearn, and two, the structure of the snooker calendar. What makes a ranking event? What makes an invitational? Why some rankers become invitationals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He says here, Alfie. Hopefully, that isn't too niche. No such thing on this podcast. So uh, we'll look, maybe look. Yeah, at- you
2: can't. You can never be niche enough. Yeah.
1: Well, maybe look at those in the future. The, the Rodney
2: Walker, he wasn't all bad, I
1: think he's got to say. He, 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 he had his good and his bad points. He was just the whole structure of how stook was run. It's the way it was set up. It wasn't necessarily him. It was just the way it was set up then. That's a whole discussion for another time. Read Clive's book would be my advice if you want more on that. Uh, in terms of r- how, ranking events and invitational events, it's true that certain tournaments have become ranking events. Um, again, there's various reasons for that. Sometimes it's been political. Sometimes it's just been that a tournament has started small and, and and grown and become bigger. But we may, in the future, return to that. Alpha has uh, given us his top 10 tournaments. So I'll read these very quickly. Number 10, the British Open, cornerstone of ITV, latest Sky Snooker season. Also, nice trophy. Number nine, Welsh Open, horribly neglected in the mid 2000s, now the pillar of the Home Nation series. Number eight, the Scottish Masters, prestigious season opening invitational until it lost its tobacco sponsor and its slot on the calendar. Number seven, and this is a tournament that, uh, that did nearly get into mind as well the Thailand Masters. Before there, was a, before there was a Chinese snooker boom, there was a Taiwan, and this tournament gave us James Watanar. It certainly did, of course, he was uh, the reason it was so popular over there, and the main reason. Uh, number six, the Grand Prix. Now, this is controversial. It said from 84 to 92, probably a better event than the UK or the Masters. Even by the end, when it became the best of five World Open, it ret- retained its prestige despite being moved from a different venue to a different venue every year. The ridiculous round-robin format of 2006-07 and the sponsorless years of the late 90s before it became the LG Cup. Number five, Shanghai Masters. This might be slightly controversial. I went ahead of the China Open simply because the players regard it highly. It grows in prestige year on year that's held and it used to be the start of the proper snooker season. And, uh, and aside from me, Shanghai is an unbelievable place as well to go to. Number four, German Masters, great, great event. Number three, UK Championship. More for what it used to be than what it is now, Italy for me, it started to lose its way when it moved out of Preston in 98 to satisfy the then-sponsor, who ended the sponsorship a couple of years later. Other changes you mentioned have left it little more than a fancy Home Nations event. Number two, the Masters, although it lost its way slightly with the loss of its long-time... Tobacco sponsor, and then Wembley Conference Centre as a venue. It's rebounded to become what the UK was and still should be. And number one, the world championship. No explanation needed. So uh, that's Alpha's choice. John Dew has also written uh, about this subject. Firstly, congratulations on another top podcast. Thoroughly enjoyed Michael and yourself debating the top 10 tournaments. In full agreement with most of your choices, and being a Swansea resident, great to hear the Welsh Open feature highly in your thoughts. On a personal note, <laughs> I this, uh, this I'm guarantee I'm the only person in the world now saying this sentence, OK? In a per, on, a personal, on a personal note, I have a soft spot for the Goya Matchroom Trophy. It, it, <laughs> 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 this is the stuff. You see, you don't get this anywhere else, do you? You don't get it. it a a, you don't.
2: Yeah. There is
1: a reason. Now. It being the first standalone tournament I remember watching as a child in its entirety in 985, coming off the back of the legendary Taylor Derby's final a few months previously, the first Sunday tea-time ITV final I can recall with Cliff beating Jimmy from nowhere, having trailed massively finally sneaking a 12-10 win. I think it was 7-0 down, actually, in that. Um, whilst, the, whilst the World Final was renowned, and I say that to watch, it was the slightly less auspicious 85-goy-mashem trophy that formed my snooker addiction. I think it became the international opening later seasons. maybe may have been the Jameson previously it was it was that cold, wet, dark autumnal week in '85 that made me love snooker. I was also a fan of the Hoffmeister doubles and the World Team Championships of the era, and whilst they won't be in my top ten tournaments, they were fondly remembered and further fueled my snooker love. As an aside, and apologies if this has been included already, this got me wondering: what match or tournament was yours and Michael's first memory, and which was the tournament that sparked your love of the game? Over to you.
2: The first match, I've never been able to remember exactly who it was, but I'm fairly sure now, after doing a bit of digging, actually, that it was Tony Mio against Rex Williams. And it was in the Lada Classic. And I didn't really understand the game uh, at all at that stage. And You can insert your own joke there about how things <laughs> changed in the last 36 years. But um, I remember Tony making a break. I think it was Tony Aaron making a break of 55. And I saw, as his score was going up, this thing break. Was was getting higher and higher. And I thought, does that mean that's the number of points before they take a break? So, I mean, that was how basic my understanding of it was. But I wasn't even really watching it. I just remember it being on the television. I wasn't taking any great interest in it. So, the first time I ever remember actually watching it would have been sometime around 86, watching the Irish Masters and the World Championship. But I, I actually didn't even know the rules then. So, the first match that I actually remember watching while knowing the rules was in a tournament called the... I think. Well, it changed its name a lot. So I think it was called the Carlsberg Challenge. It was a four-man event that used to take place in the RT Studios in Dublin right at the start of the season. And I think it was maybe Jimmy White against Joe Johnson. But I remember watching one of the semifinals of that anyway. Uh, so round about this time, actually, in 1986, that would have been the first thing I watched. And the ranking event match that I watched uh, after I actually understood anything about the game and knew the rules was... Uh, the tournament that followed the match Matchroom Trophy the following year, the BCE International, which is what it became in 86. And I remember watching the final between my good friend, Neil Folds and uh, Cliff Thorburn. So there's my answer.
1: Okay, yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure the first tournament I remember watching avidly was, was the 86 World Championship. I told the story before about the scrapbook I made, yeah. um, cutting faces out of the newspapers, a page for each player, didn't bother with Joe Johnson, I never heard of him, he clearly was never going to win it course, He did win it and ruined basically the scrapbook. Um, so that was when uh, that would have been, I think, when I, I would have seen it before that, but I think that would have been when I would have started watching intently. Um, so that was the start of it all for me. Uh, Ray Morgan joined the podcast very much. Just a few questions, he's, he's sent us three questions. We'll try and answer them one after another. So, the first one. This is quite a big subject as well. Why do the overwhelming number of snooker players, like boxers, not look after their money for their retirement? <laughs> well, that's quite a sweeping statement. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of snooker players have got into financial difficulty. My theory is it's a bit like sort of musicians, pop, you know, pop stars, when they, they're so keen to actually do the thing they love when they're young. They will sign anything that's put in front of them um and it's certainly true and we know this that there have been disreputable people who've called themselves managers and have ripped players off it happened at the height of the boom in the 80s sadly it's happened you know quite a bit since then not to everybody some people of course just spend money you know irresponsibly i mean that's the same in any walk of life you, you've heard snooker players go on the telly say i've got no money well why not you know you've earned over a million in prize money the, the reason is you've, you've sort of spent it on stuff um maybe they don't always see kind of where the end of the career will be. They don't always live what you might describe as responsibly, if that's the way you want to put it. Um, it's, but not every player's like that. There's some, some players, I mean, I'll, I'll name one, Ken Doherty, I'm sure, you know, would will never have to work another day in his life because he invested wisely when he was doing well. Um, yeah. So it's not true. It's just I think, I think, that I, point. yeah, Go on. Go
2: on. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, it kind of just uh, builds on what you were saying there. I think a lot of players, once they reach a certain level of earning, they tend to think without really thinking it through. But they get into the mindset of thinking, this is now what I earn every year. So mm-hmm. you get a player who might have a great year win one hundred and fifty thousand or two hundred thousand pounds. And, you know, it's huge money to someone who, you know, has just come from the amateur game and a few years later might be on that sort of earning. They start to think, this is great, I'm on 150 grand a year. And they start to act as if they're going to be earning that every year. And, of course, there's no guarantee they'll even get it again the next year. So I think that's part of the problem. They need someone to take them aside and say, look, this isn't going to last forever. In fact, it's probably not going to last very long at all. So plan for that. I think as well,
1: a lot of them, obviously, most of them come from working class backgrounds where uh, when they're big big kids, they have not got a lot of money. They could never have dreamed of owning a Ferrari. So what's the first thing they do when they get a few quid? They buy one. They buy stuff. But of course, like you say, you can't guarantee in sport, more more than perhaps anything, you can't guarantee what you're going to earn. During, the, during a year, you know, it could be it could literally be nothing, you know, actually on the snooker tour, or it could be absolute riches Judd Trump last couple of years, over a million in prize money alone um, the other thing to say is, certainly historically when players turn professional, they just basically are, are asked to turn up with a cue, they're not given any advice by, or they weren't then by the governing body, I think certainly the WPBSA under Jason Ferguson has vastly improved in terms of the advice that it gives to players on a whole range of things, so hopefully you know, players will be a bit more secure in the future. Anyway, Ray's uh, next question Ray Morgan's next question this is a good question actually and I think there's a simple answer why don't they use the Chinese technology to replace the cue ball during matches it would replace the to and fro between the referee and the marker me to you you to me well it can only be money can't it I mean the, the system that they've had in China with the little circles seems to sort it out pretty quickly everyone can see where the balls have to go the players can see it the officials can see it uh, I suspect it's money. I, I can't think of any other reason why why they wouldn't import it over to the, the British events.
2: Yeah, I, I, it is a mystery. It works really well, as you say. And yeah, I can only echo everything you've said. There. It's, it's something you can see being looked at and just being quietly changed for the better quite soon.
1: Final question He says
2: John Higgins uses the Riley
1: aristocrat table at home Says it's the best Stephen Hendry says Riley and BCE tables are the best Why then are star tables used in matches? Surely you need the best for the best Well I mean not everyone would agree That you know those two The Riley and the and the B C are better than star Again though it comes down to money Star got the contract It's a massive operation I actually went And this is getting on for Must be 15 years ago I went to a star factory in China and it was a 24-hour, seven-day operation to meet the demand, even then, for snooker tables. Um, and, you know, we see inc- an incredible standard of snooker played on these tables. So um, there's no um, suggestion that they're not really good tables. But every player has their own view. And, of course, Higgins and Hendry grew up on different tables. There were no star tables when they started playing. So the bottom line is star have got the, the contract. Uh, now, we've had an email here from Michael Holt, but not that one. Not the, uh, not the shooter. There's not the another shooter- one the I- not, not the shootout champ, this, the, well this Michael lives in Brooklyn, New York <laughs> So, another American correspondent First of all I'd like to express my appreciation of your wonderful podcast Which gave me a much needed snooker fix during the early days of lockdown Especially here in New York when we were getting hit hard by the virus As an avid player and fan of over 40 years My email primarily concerns the professional misrule Which I think is in dire need of a change Whilst everyone has been raving over how thrilling, unpredictable and totally unique the final frame of their 17-16 semi-final was between Corin Wilson and Nancy McGill, I personally couldn't help but feel that this situation with the snooker on the last red with the black over the pocket, where he repeated misses cost McGill over 35 points, was an absolute travesty. As Steve Davis said, I can't watch, this is horrible. The rule was originally instituted to curb pros who would intentionally miss and leave it safe from a snooker the miss rule worked fine for a while but over time has shown itself to be rather ridiculous with all the with all the upper bit, left a bit getting the balls back and mainly the draconian punishment that can be meted out when at times, like McGill the players only miss by the merest fraction they've already been punished enough let's say after three misses their opponent can either play from where the balls come to rest make the opponent play from that position or play the cue ball in hand and even from anywhere on the table if it comes to it You can't surely agree it was fair McGill or anyone else to have to go through that. Or can you? On another note, (laughs) I lived in Durban, South Africa in my teams and had a six-foot table upon which I played countless imaginary world championships. One practice routine I developed was trilliards. like billiards, but with a pink and black instead of a red. And of course, a spot white for the opponent. Great practice potting pink and black off their spots, and cannons were a lot easier with three object balls to work with. I had several thousand plus breaks and spent many happy hours, Mike, in Brooklyn. Well, On the main issue there, the miss rule, I mean, the first thing to say is, of course, a few years ago, I can't remember how many exactly, the players were actually asked in a sort of referendum, do you want to change the miss rule? Do you want to change um, the options after a miss? And even though a lot of players don't actually like the rule as it is, the the overwhelming majority voted to keep it as it is. But it's certainly true that in certain situations, it can seem very harsh. The thing is, though, if you have a rule, in my opinion, it has to apply whether it's frame one of the tournament or the deciding frame of a semi-final. The rule is the rule. The referee, I think it was Brendan Moore, he's there to apply the rule, not to decide because it's a deciding frame, I can't. Um, it did seem harsh. I think the, the one harsh thing for me has always been that the rule, when there are reds on, it's the same principle if there's 15 reds on, or if there's one. Now, obviously, if there's 15 reds on... You have a number of choices about how to play for a particular red, for any red. There's, you know, multitudinous choices about what shot to play. If there's one red on, your choices are vastly limited. Um, And there's no suggestion he wasn't trying to hit the red. Obviously, you know, it was just a very, um, I don't know, it was a very, I think, frustrating way for the match to come come towards an end um, after three days of battle. So I can understand Mike's point, but I'll go back to what I said. The players are asked, do you want to change it? And they said no.
2: Yeah, I I don't think it needs changing at all. I think it's absolutely right. And There was this perception when the miss rule was in its early days that it was about how close you got to making contact. But I don't think it was ever really intended to be that way, and it certainly isn't. Now, if a professional player plays the shot in a way that does not give him the maximum opportunity of making contact with the ball on, then I think he should have to go in because it's a big part of the professional game and carving out chances, trying to put your opponent in a spot from which you hope to force an opening. And if a player has the opportunity after two or three goes to simply get out of it by not making an effort to get out of it, in fact, by not making an effort to answer the conundrum he's been set, then I don't think that should be allowed. So I wouldn't actually change the misrule at all. I do agree it can be a frustrating and anticlimactic way for a match to be decided, but that's just part of the game. And just going back to the thing about star tables, I mean, mm. I would recommend to anyone who likes playing the game at all Just have a go on one, even for about 10 minutes. It's an amazing experience. The first time I played on one was at Nigel Bonds Academy in Sheffield about four or five years ago, and I played on it for about 10 minutes, and I thought, this is unbelievable. It's like going from your normal club tables to that. It's like going from your local municipal golf course to playing at Augusta National. It's that big a difference. The only problem is, once you've been on one for about 10 minutes, it's such a joy, you might be reluctant to go back to your club tables again.
1: Okay, we'll move, we'll stay in America. James Cook, uh, a regular correspondent, has been driving around, uh, I think, over 30 states he's been in. He says, uh, Hey there, hope as ever, you're well. Listen to part two of The Greatest Torments on a fairly short seven hour drive from Maine to New York City. So he's gone to New York, he can meet up with, with Mike. Be a podcast uh, uh, meter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said. Uh, yeah, he drove to New York to pick up an autumn jacket and some jumpers. Sixteen-year-old daughter in the passenger seat probably fell asleep after you read, you read my email out. I, I, I'm guessing she's not the only person to do that. Listen to this. Thank you, and no offence. On the top torment discussion, I'm obviously not. Surpri- I'm a, I'm not surprised that Pot Black didn't make it into the top four, but perhaps it should have been in the top ten. If not, where would you rank it? Hopefully above Big Break. As I write this on Tuesday evening, the big news, of course, is Mr. Hendry is making a comeback, which I'm sure you'll be discussing. As a Hendry fan, who incidentally I saw play in the China Open in Beijing against Ding when I lived in China in 2009, gets about, doesn't he, James? Uh, D- D- Ding won, I recall. And related to your discussion on the China Open, I managed to bag second row seats for about 10 British pounds on the day of the match. When living in China, I found a snooker and pool club in Beijing near the Workers' Stadium, which I frequented where the staff would set the balls up for you at the end of each frame if you could master Mandarin enough to get their attention. A loud cry of Fu Yuan usually did it. Still have no idea what it means. Let's hope it's uh, nothing offensive. By the way, next to that snooker club was an aquarium called the Blue Zoo, which was interesting with the fact that at 11 o'clock sharp every Sunday, pipe music would fill the place, heralding the mermaid show, which was quite the spectacle. China is a fascinating place for sure I think we've veered off the subject a little bit here Anyway, uh, back to the point My thoughts on the Henry comeback He retired at the top with his legend intact He's in the top two of the greatest ever So why go back now? I sense that it's fear of Ronnie getting close to seven world titles But is the Golden Bear realistically Going to win another one? To me it's a bit like the return of David Brent A few years after The Office finished It was a perfect two series Chris, plus Christmas special And as there was nothing more to prove It went downhill Stranger things have happened, I guess. Tiger winning the Masters recently. But wouldn't an eighth-worth title for Hendry be a bigger shock than Dave Hendon winning Dave Tyndall's Fantasy Commentators Tournament 2021? We'll be coming to that shortly, by the way. Uh, thanks, as ever. Keep up the good work. Well, we'll we'll get to Hendry in a minute. Pop Black, if we would... I mean, our choices were personal choices. They were... Yes, significance in terms of the history of the sport, but also our favourite events. Pot Black, if you're doing purely the most significant snooker tournaments ever, would be in the top 10 because it was it started uh, snooker on the BBC in, in the UK. That was the start of snooker on television worldwide. So it was a very significant event. But let's be honest, it doesn't rank anywhere near the, the great ranking events that have come since. Uh, it was a one-frame tournament tournament it was quite low on drama really it, it it fulfilled a very important need early on it got snooker on the telly it made stars of the players it was big for them they could go out charge money much more money for exhibitions and it led to the creation of the professional circuit so it was a significant event but it, to, to me it doesn't stack it doesn't stack up against you know the great tournaments that we've seen since um
2: well, well, just i just sp- on that yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, hey. You know, I think it's a fair point to ask. I wouldn't perhaps put it in the top 10, but I think it's a fair point to raise that he has done there. I would say it's a bit like when we did the top 10 players, and we both agreed Joe Davis doesn't get in there, wouldn't be anywhere near it, really. But if you were making a list of the 10 most significant players in the game history, you could even make a case for him actually being number one in it. And, you know, strange as it seems, when you've got the world championship, you could actually make a case, if you were doing the most significant tournaments, for putting Pop Lack number one. Because, we can't assume that Snooker would ever have made it to television were it not for Pop Black. It could just have faded away. It, it had already done once before and could have been forgotten about. And none of this may have happened. All that we've Well, yeah. In the last four years.
1: What I'll say is, Pop Black was the perfect way to package Snooker. It was just half an hour, so you weren't putting four hours on and sort of really, you know, mm. condemning people to the whole evening. It was just half an hour, like a taster session. Just a genius format, actually. Brilliant format, brilliant idea. So, yeah, significant event. But in terms of the tournaments, I look back on as events I've enjoyed. It, it just wouldn't be there. Here's the thing, though. Stephen Hendry talked about. Now, I interviewed Stephen last week on the podcast, and you could hear from him. He, he's saying it's not a come. He's, he's trying to lower expectations. It's not a comeback. I made the point afterwards that I think he needs to potentially look a little bit about how the circuit actually works. He was talking about going to Barnsley for qualifiers. That's not happening now. It's all basically Milton Keynes. He's talking about coming back for the UK Championship. But to stand any chance of doing any good, he's got to be competitive. And you only do that by playing. So why he's not playing in the European Masters, I don't know. I hope that he's going to enter the home nations because that's perfect practice. You know, you can be... And you don't necessarily going to be on the main table. You can be under the radar a little bit, maybe for a couple of rounds. Um, I think the only chance he's really got of... Of, of doing what he wants to do which is presumably play well and compete is to actually play you can't just turn up for two or three events a year and expect to, to do any good after eight years off
2: yeah that's absolutely right and the thing with the uk as well i assume they're doing that again where it's one versus 128 mm. two versus 127 now he's going to be down near the bottom so he's looking at maybe playing no or Trump or someone in the first round and you know good luck with that really Uh, you know, to come back after eight years off the circuit, you you have to say have almost no chance of winning a match like that. But he was saying, uh, he said this in a couple of interviews, I think, over the last uh, week or so, that his ambition is to get back to play at the Crucible again. I know he played there in seniors, but he means in the World Championship. Mm. And I I totally agree with what you're saying. If you go in against players who have been playing themselves into the groove all season, and you have only played one or two matches, and you're trying to get through, you know, what could be back being best of 19s next year, And you could have to win four of them. Again, that's just not going to happen at all. So, yeah, he's got to play a lot more tournaments. And also, there was a time when he was at his peak when he was doing his six or seven hours a day and not many others were doing it. I would suggest if he goes in competing with other low-ranked players, which is what he's going to be now, they're all doing six or seven hours a day. So, he's got to do it again to stand any chance at all. So, I have to say, as Henry's biggest fan, I... Not that enthused about him coming back. And I'd love to see him coming back and doing well. I just don't think it's going to happen. Also, does he maybe lose a little bit of credibility now? You know, he's got this elder statesman role. He's fantastic at the commentary. I've said that a number of times. And he can criticize players from, you know, the ideal position, given all his success. But what happens now if he's sitting in the commentary box criticising the shot choices and the approach of someone who beat him the week before? (laughs) I think maybe he loses his uh, his, his gravitas that way, even with all his history in the game. One thing we'll definitely say, it's going to be interesting to see how it proceeds. And the first question that will be interesting to see the answer to is how many tournaments he's planning to play in, which at the moment, on the basis of what he said, doesn't look like being that many.
1: No, it's a good point. And I think that he can't, afford to feel it's almost sort of beneath him you, you you either come back or you don't you know it's like if you're going to be if you're going to be a swimmer you've got to jump in the swimming pool you've got to actually embrace it and I think that um he what he needs to do is just look at how the, the the circuit is configured now because as we'll come on to later when we talk about the new season you know it's basically all in Milton Keynes so so it, it's not that you're going to go to sort of low-key qualifiers most of the events now because of the restrictions the whole tour are going to be out. So why not just play in as much as you can? Anyway, we'll see how that develops. Now, our next email is from Stephen Hayes, who has an extraordinary amount of letters after his name. He's obviously incredibly qualified in various things. He says, thanks for the great podcast. I enjoy listening while driving to and from work. I've lived in Tasmania, Australia for 25 years. So catching on snooker our internet and podcast has been great in recent years. Compared to the late 90s. Luckily, I grew up in England during the 80s snooker boom and managed to get all my major academic assignments based on snooker. For example, A level physics, investigating the kick. I managed to convince my housemaster to allow me to move a six by three table from the common room to the physics lab and therefore spent three months playing snooker while finishing physics. Maths degree, I wrote a computer simulation program to play a game of snooker based on stats I collected by watching hundreds of hours of snooker, not a sure, I admit, and then statistically analysing the results. Sadly, I couldn't get enough of a winning margin to beat the local bookmakers near my university. I discussed my results with Steve Davis and Clive Everton and appeared in the August 1989 edition of Snooker Scene. I digress I digress slightly. The point of my email is a thought I've had for a long time. You often hear that player needs X snookers to win a frame. What I'd love to know is the average number of snookers a player would need to lay to get the required points needed in penalties. Now, as all stats, they are outliers, and someone like Mark Selby would need probably need more snookers laid against him than any other player, and the stat would have to be broken down into situations where reds are left and where, when only colours remain. Look forward to future podcasts. It's a good point because we say, you know, he needs two snookers. There's two successful snookers. You might have to lay 15 to actually get the two. You're quite right what you say. It depends who you're playing. Um Some players are better than others. I think all the top players now are really good at laying snookers and getting out of them. You don't see really that many frames one with a player needing certainly more than two, two or three, one snooker's different. Um, so it's interesting. But you would need, Stephen, you would need basically to take the whole year off and and basically analyse every match that's played to get the answer to that. Um, but it's a good point. And I think when we commentate, we we should be mindful when we say, you know, player X needs two snookers. Actually, what they need is two snookers successfully laid that get the penalty points. They might have to lay
2: 20 snookers to get to that position. Um, but anyway, <laughs> good... good Go on. Well, I, I was going to pick up and mention Stephen Henry again, actually. I talked to him about this once, and he was saying he, he was never really that interested in playing for snookers. I mean, you probably remember there were a lot of times where he only needed one snooker, and he mm. wouldn't bother playing on in the frame. And he was of the view, and you know, who am I to even you know have an opinion on what, what he thinks about how to <clears> go about winning matches, but I, I do tend to agree with him. He was of the view that it's basically wasted energy. Because how many frames do you really see? Maybe if you need one snooker, even then it's actually pretty rare. But needing snookers from two or three frames, yeah. If, sorry, winning frames from needing two or three snookers, we can all point to examples of it. But it's very, very rare. And you're almost better off just getting on with the next frame and just, just forgetting about it.
1: Well, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because what it can do, it can. if a player's made like a 70 break, they think, right, I won this frame. If you mess them around playing for snookers for 20 minutes, you are actually affecting their rhythm. You're affecting, you're making them actually use up energy. So it's not just the player playing for the snookers. It's the, it's partly psychology, and and you do see sometimes in matches you can see a player getting frustrated that the frame is continuing. I've seen people play for seven snookers, and you know what they're doing. They're just at it, but they're perfectly entitled to to give it a go. Anyway, um, we'll...
2: go that, that is a valid point, yeah, that, that mm. you can certainly do that, but uh, so basically you're, you're disputing the views of the 7 times world champion on how to win matches. then.
1: Well, no, in terms of playing for Snookers, he's, he's not a player who necessarily, as you pointed out, you would actually seek the pin-off because he wasn't interested, he just wanted to put with it. Yeah. And that's actually the interesting thing about the comeback. That true.
0: It's... Yeah.
2: That's the thing about the it, comeback. It, it, is, it is a fair point. Yeah, yeah you, you can use it as a means of disrupting the player's rhythm, but... I suppose the point I'm making is that, you know, when we talk about it, it's it's very, very rare, actually, that you see players win a freight from needing more than one snooker. That's the interesting thing, though. Is, is Hendry, because he sort of said, I asked him about this, and he said, I said, will you be
1: playing safe? And he did say he was working on all areas of his game. I just think that when he gets out there, he'll want to pot everything again. He, he, you know, you play the way you play, and I, I don't see Hendry becoming a grinder. I don't think he would enjoy that one bit. No. Uh, we'll move on, Mark, Definitely. Mark Hayden, I believe, works for the Lawn Tennis Association, um, and he says, I listen to your podcast and I love it. Snooker and tennis have always been my passion since the age of 7. At 42, nothing has changed. Over the years, I've heard lots of conversations around the speed of tables and cloths, and some being slow and responsive, some very fast. This always seems to be by luck rather than design. My question would be, could we not make cloths play at different speeds on purpose to bring more variability to the tour? I mentioned tennis, and obviously there are three main services, hard, grass, and clay, and you have indoor and outdoor, which can affect speed. Nowadays, the services are more similar, but they still have intricacies around them, and players who thrive more on some courts than others. I love snooker as it is, but I've always thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have different speeds on the tour? I'm sure it would create more specialists. I uh, could imagine someone like Mark Allen being very good on fast tables but struggling on slow with his more compact, jabbier action, whereas someone like Sean Murphy might be the opposite. Just a thought. If you could talk around this, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm going to be honest. I've never thought of that as a, as a deliberate ploy. Sometimes you get tables, yeah, that play really quick. Sometimes not so quick. The weather can affect it. You know, traditionally, when players went to places like Thailand, they were quite heavy because of the humidity. And someone like John Parrott seemed like his game seemed to really suit that that sort of table. In general, obviously, the table fitters um, are charged with. Uh, putting up you know quality tables and that normally means you know the best possible conditions the, the fast cloth um and that's kind of the modern way so i don't know i've never thought of this what do you think D- should, should we have deliberately different uh, different conditions
2: well i don't know if you really can because if you talk to any table fitter they'll always say that they're trying to get every table to play a certain way but they don't always manage to do it And it's not their fault it's because you know, the table might just go in on a wet morning. There might be a bit of moisture around. Um, so I'm not really sure you can control it in that way because they're trying at the moment to get them all basically playing the same and they can't do that. But it's if you set out to play a particular tournament on a particular speed of table, I think that would probably be even harder to achieve. So it's probably, you know, an impossible thing to to set out to do. And can you imagine the complaining that would be from (laughs) the players? I mean, we know there's something to moan about. If someone said, we're going to do this, you imagine the complaining they'd do. Yeah, I guess
1: it's just different in tennis because they're they're very definable different services. You know, grass is different to clay. This is all the same. It's the same cloth. It's just a question of a different role of the cloth, I guess. Anyway, that's uh, something to maybe think about. Finally, on the email front... Of course, I will save the best for last with Dave Tyndall, who has been playing his latest competition, has been the Commentator's Special. Now, it was two weeks ago where we left it at the semi final stage, and the semi final lineup was Stephen Hendry against Dennis Taylor and Joe Johnson against Clive Everton. <laughs> so, semi finals. Hendry again looks a class apart, going into the pack at the first opportunity to reel off a 38 break and comfortably defeat Dennis Taylor in the first semi. Scott was pleased to make the final but said later that Taylor's positional play was bang average. In the second semi a relaxed Joe Johnson looked as if he was playing at his local club in Bradford when opening up with a nonchalant long red but a missed brown when in prime position opened the door for a Clive Everton comeback. The wily snooker scene editor showed he could score when in the balls with a measured 40 break sent Clive through to his date of destiny with seven time world champion Hendry. The final. As with all the pop black finals played from 1978 to 1991, this one was contested over three frames. However, then came major controversy. After imaginary talks with Barry Hearn, the finals switched from a six by three in my house to a full size table at Leeds' iconic Northern Snooker Centre. ITV filmed the pro-celebrity snooker series there in the 1970s, and that explains the unlikely canvas paintings you see on some of the back walls. So on table 26, for example, while potting reds and blacks you're overlooked, by the apparently random duo of two-time world champion Alex Higgins and carry-on actor Bill Maynard. Now, here's the thing, just breaking away, just breaking off from Dave's email, Bill Maynard actually does play yeah,
0: so
2: not, a part
1: yeah. par in snooker history because I interviewed John Williams, the referee for the 85 final, the Taylor-Davis Blackpool final, and I said, you know, it was obviously very exciting, was it? was, was, was it with the crowd getting out of control? Was it hard to control them? He said, I only had a problem with one person, Bill Maynard, the actor, was there and was getting very excited and was shouting out and he had to basically tell him to shut up. So Bill Maynard, you know, he he, he is steeped in snooker history and hanging out with Alex Higgins suggests he was a troublemaker. Anyway, back to uh, the email. My final took place on table 22, which is overlooked by paintings of Les Dawson and former world number no. 47, Ian Williamson. Les needs no introduction. Well, actually, he probably does, isn't he? Because there be people listening to this who have no idea who he is. He was a very uh, well-liked northern comedian, he also wrote novels. He was very sort of erudite. And his great act was playing the piano badly. So he's, he, he would play get, he would play the piano out of tune, which in itself is a skill. Um, and he presented a quiz show called Blankety Blank, which people will still recall. Uh, anyway, if Williamson seems a rather a curious choice, Ian is the son of Jim Williamson, who founded the Northern Sioux Center in the 70s. Ian's now a coach, along with Peter Lyons. I'll send more of my first lesson with Peter in a future email. It's a cracking story. So to the final. Table 22 has relatively tight pockets, and that caused some shrewd punters to put their money on Clive, with the table suiting safety more than the open game preferred by Hendry. In what can only be described as a litter-strewn first frame, Hendry built a 38-31 lead before Clive came alive and negotiated an awkward set of colours to fire in a 25-break and claim a 1-0 lead. Rattled by the loss of the opener, Hendry opened the second frame with a break of 23. The Scott went 50-22 ahead before Clive counter-punched with a 20 put himself in position to pinch frame a match with another clearance of the colours. However, it wasn't to be this time, and Hendry levelled up one each. So couldn't be more exciting as we head into the Decider. I remember a tournament that doesn't actually I'm, exist.
0: I'm genuinely <laughs> nervous.
2: Yeah. I'm genuinely nervous waiting for the outcome of this. This reminds me of when I went to see Fever Pitch, the movie which is built all around Arsenal's title campaign in 1989. Now, it's the most inevitable ending for a movie since Titanic, basically, but even <laughs> when, when they're showing the the match and they're going through it, and he's watching, and Arsenal are chasing that second goal. I remember getting genuinely nervous as to what the outcome was going to be, even though we all knew Arsenal did get it. So I I feel just as nervous about uh, finding out who wins this. Well, let's let's
1: reveal it. Okay, so back to Dave's email. Safety was initially the name of the game in the decider before Hendry nipped him with mini runs of fifteen and fourteen to go thirty two eight up. A loose safety from Clive then proved fatal. Hendry knocked in a fluid 30-break to extend his lead to 62-8, and that left his opponent needing three four-point snookers. There was no coming back for the gutsy Everton, and moments later Hendry was stood next to Les Dawson, giving a post-match interview to a, car- to a cardboard cutout of Alan Winks. <laughs> a few days after I played the Fantasy Park final, the real Hendry decided to come out of retirement after an eight-year hiatus. Surely the only conclusion to draw is that Hendry's victory in my imaginary pot black played a huge part in his decision. Well, uh, thank you, Dave. He didn't actually, oddly enough, Stephen didn't mention that last week, but maybe it was somewhere in his thoughts. So Hendry, uh, well, he's already won a tournament. He's only been back five minutes. He's already won a tournament. Um, thank you very much, Dave. Northern Snooker Centre, well, of course, is a, is a fantastic club. I mean, it's probably still the best club in the, in the country.
2: Yeah, and uh, I've, I've got to say about that, wouldn't it have been the most fantastic thing ever if the end of that had been Henry winning the final frame after needing five snookers or something? It would have been the perfect follow-up to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. And as for Clive, he's probably going to be inquiring as to whether he's due any prize money for reaching the final. Indeed. Well, I spoke to It was Clive's birthday
1: this week. I spoke to him, yeah. and uh, he, he's, uh, he's, he's broke his femur um, in the summer, which obviously... He, he fell down at home obviously when you're uh, his age is not a good thing at all so he's actually not mobile at all so we'd be delighted to hear that he's sort of running around the table making these breaks otherwise uh, he is very well in himself so there are the emails as i say if i didn't read yours out it was nothing personally just uh, we've been going 40 minutes and we haven't got to our main topic yet so we're gonna have to move on but you can email us on any topic snooker scene podcast at com. that's snooker scene podcast at com. and actually just before move on to the main subject I do also have a new Twitter project um, called Snooker on This Day, which is exactly as it sounds. During lockdown, there were long days during lockdown, and we didn't spend them all doing podcasts. And I had this idea. I wonder if I can get a fact about snooker for every day of the year. Okay, and I just I decided I picked a month at random, which was September, because I knew that was traditionally kind of when the season used to start. So there'd be plenty of sort of things to, to look at. And I went through it, and I did. I got a fact for every day. Quite a few of them are birthdays. Um, Some of them are maximums, and other things are just anniversaries of finals. So I I did uh, September, October, and November during lockdown. And it occurred to me as September started, really, if I don't actually put this out into the world, it's kind of a bit of a waste of time, really. So I've started a Twitter account, and every day there will be a fact from that day in history. So, for example, um, I think the first one I did actually was – which was – September, I think the eighth, was that was actually the 70th anniversary of the first snooker match shown on the BBC, um, which was a sort of exhibition match between Joe Davis and Walter Donaldson, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the uh, handle is at Snooker OTD if you're interested in that, which hopefully you are. If you listen to the Snooker Podcast, you can check that out. Anyway, moving forward to the new season, so it's going to be interesting. Obviously, you know, firstly, kudos that we've got a season at all because obviously, in the current climate. It's very difficult for sport, and apart from anything else, a lot of sports, and we're seeing, we're going to see this, I think, m- more in football than anything, the loss of ticket revenue and the loss of the actual public and the money they spend coming to events. If this carries on for a long time, he's going to start to really hurt sports. But at the moment, snooker under Barry Hearn, is in a very strong financial position. He, he runs a massive empire at Matchroom, lots of different sports, some more profitable than others, but he's able to keep things going the European Masters um, has got the same prize fund as last year I thought maybe it would be cut here and there it's not it's the same prize fund 80000 to the winner still so it's going to be an interesting season uh, venues include Milton Keynes uh, Milton Keynes Uh, then we're off to Milton Keynes uh, and Milton Keynes you get the idea listen it's great they've got the tournaments on and hopefully this won't continue for too long Um, it's a great venue there actually the Marshall Arena of course Championship League on there at the moment so any season you know, has has its sort of interesting points, but I think we always start a new season looking back at, okay, who's the world champion now? There's a the person you sort of are looking at. Um, and obviously it's Ronnie O'Sullivan again. Judd Trump was very, very impressive last season as world champion. He's now lost his crown. I don't know what you think, but to me, the, the sort of rivalry between those two now is the interesting thing to watch for because it's certainly true that the dynamic seem to have shifted towards Trump. He was beating... Ronnie in a lot of finals who beat him in Belfast twice, the masters very comfortably in, in that final clearly doesn't fear playing him. And it was, I'd assume the mantle of top dog, he'd become world champion and become world number one. It must've been tempting to think, okay, have I got his number now is, is this my era and Ronnie's era is over suddenly <laughs> Ronnie's world champion again. So he's won the biggest tournament in the sport. What does that do to Trump now? And has the balance of power shifted? We don't know until they play each other. But I think that's going to be fascinating to watch.
2: Yeah, it's not even so much about the balance of power when it comes to Ronnie, because as we just saw a few weeks ago, I mean, he can come out of nowhere and suddenly win a tournament. Although, as we've discussed, he didn't perhaps produce his best form in the World Championship. So, you know, he can be in a position where Trump is piling up the tournaments and streaking ahead at number one, but he'll still go into every tournament, feeling he's got as much chance to win it as ever. I think when he was replaced shall we say as top dog by mark selby around the middle of the last decade that got to him in a certain way because he didn't like the way selby played and that really threw him that really seemed to get under his skin as we've discussed in the past with trump i think in a way perhaps got under his skin even more for completely the opposite reason because now here was someone who had come along replaced him as the best player in the world and was playing the way that o'sullivan is renowned for playing he'd become the crowd favorite and I think that really motivated and inspired him going into the World Championship, perhaps even more so once Trump had gone out. He knew it's such a great chance to do it. So it's a very different sort of rivalry to what it was like uh, with the great O'Sullivan Selby, whereas that was such a contrast of styles. This is two players who are very much the same and I've seen enough big finals between them. we have seen quite a few. Over the years, but actually a lot of those were before Trump had become what he is now. The last couple of seasons, we've seen them play each other in the Masters final, a couple of finals in Belfast. I don't feel we've seen anywhere near enough finals between them, though, in recent years. A lot of that has been down to O'Sullivan maybe not playing as much as Trump. But there are signs now, and as you say, with all the tournaments being in Milton Keynes for the foreseeable future and the behind closed doors environment, O'Sullivan might actually start to play a lot more. So we may start to see a lot more of those finals. And of course, they'll be going into a lot of tournaments as the numbers uh, one and two seeds.
1: All true. But here's the thing. So that what you described there was from really from Ronnie's perspective, from Trump's perspective, mm-hmm. how does he feel now? Because he had become top dog in the sport. I mean, he won six ranking events. There was a great video. Will Snooker put up this week, um, just rounding up all the finals. And you you're reminded how well you got to play to win these tournaments. You know, in, so six ranking events, five of them he had to win seven matches to win the title. In five of them he had to be a top sixteen player in the final alone. You know he played great to win those tournaments. They were big events, and he won them all. Um, you know, fantastic season. Obviously, he wanted to keep the world title, but by any measure, he was the player of the year. But as I say, having become top dog, now a lot of the spotlight, Ronnie O'Sullivan has rested from him. So f- from Trump's perspective, does that put more pressure on him, or is he just playing so well? it doesn't matter he can, he can get the world title
2: back i'd lean more towards the latter there i mean it reminds me so much of stephen henry who obviously won the world championship in 1990 had an amazing season after that record breaking at the time lost his world title but then went to the cru- crucible the following year won it and ended up winning it then five years in a row off the back of that i don't think trump will be thrown greatly off course to be honest he's learned a lot about himself the last couple of years we always knew what a Expanding talent he was. I think he, as much as anyone, has realized just how much potential he has as a player. I don't think there's any particular reason to think that just because he didn't win the world championship, he's not going to pick up from there and get back into that rhythm. I know he, he lost his way a bit when snooker came back after the shutdown, but we'll be back now into a run of one tournament after another, really over the next few months. And that will enable him to have the opportunity to get back into that rhythm that he had before it was held after Gibraltar by the lockdown. If I was picking now a world champion for 2021, I'd definitely be picking him because I think he's so good. And I think he's going to continue to be so good for a really long time to come. It's interesting, though, the dynamic
1: now, just to wind link to to, to all the players, really. For the foreseeable future, it's going to be behind closed doors. There's not many audiences. We don't know for how long. My theory is it might be till after Christmas. But, for, you know, for the next few tournaments, certainly there's not going to be an audience. Now, it seemed to me... I was at the Tour Championship in Milton Keynes, and it seemed to me a lot of how players sort of cope with that was down to their attitude. There were some players who went there and clearly noticed it, and didn't sort of, didn't embrace the new setup and was sort of saying, oh, it's just like practice, and not proper tournament. Other players, the most obvious being Steve Maguire, who won it, just knuckled down and played snooker and shut out the fact that there was no sort of atmosphere concentrate on the table. And I think that is a challenge for the players this year. They've got to get on with the new situation. It's the same game, but the setup has changed. Of course, Trump won the first event, Gibraltar um, Open, that actually came in before... Um, but was actually before, lo- before lockdown, but it, they were, there was no audience. Um, but it'll be interesting that I think some players have to get over the fact that the situation has changed and just maybe just concentrate on, I guess, doing their job, which is to play snooker.
2: Yeah, and I mean, this is the only show in town for now. It's not like you can say, oh, I won't take this tournament too seriously. There's no crowd here. It's obviously not as important. But that's going to be the case, as you say, for all the tournaments for the time being. So if you take that attitude, you're basically riding off. Half your season, really, right from the start,
1: what about sort of um we did a prediction thing on on the website in we mm-hmm. sneak a website yeah. um and one of the questions that were always asked is you know sort of I guess a sort of surprise package uh, you know which it was not clear exactly what what it meant I mean I guess it means someone's going to come good in a tournament, maybe win one or have a have a good run in one or or just generally climb the rankings um. I went for Elliot Slessor. I think he's improved. Um, he's in the top 64 now. I, th- I thought he showed great fighting qualities at the Crucible in that second session against Yan Bing Tao. Um, nearly made a great comeback. But, you know, you can you can pick any sort of players down the list. But I know you went for Scott Donaldson, and I certainly rate him very highly. He's a player who clearly works hard. You can see that. He has improved dramatically. And he, he also always beats Ding. He's one of these people who just seems to come along and beat top players. Of course, one... He won one of the championship leagues last year. There have been so many, I can't remember which one it was, but he won one of them. Um, you, you think he'll do well this year, yeah?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think he improved a lot last season. He Well, he was in the one-to-watch section that you mentioned, I picked Ashley Carty, but I picked right. Scott for the maiden tournament winner. Now, he's won a non-ranking tournament, but I think... Uh, and I confirmed this with World Snooker, actually, that they were referring to new ranking event winner. Look, he's one of the highest ranked players anyway, who hasn't won a ranking tournament yet. So I think, you know, it's no great surprise that he would be considered one of the likely ones. What I said on the website about him was, I think he's a you know really good match player, a really good scrapper. Because he's won a lot of matches against good players. And then you look at the match sheet and you think, oh, it doesn't look like he's played that great. But that's, I suppose, is because focus focused so much on the scoring. But what I've said about for some time, if he could weigh in a bit more heavily with the scoring, win more frames in one visit, be capable of putting together three or four frames where he makes 60s or 70s in all of them, then I think he can really become a top player. And there were some signs last season that he was uh, certainly moving in that direction and improving a lot in that regard. Obviously, hugely disappointed not to get back to the Crucible. But, you know, he's only 26 years of age, and it's so young now for a snooker player. It's changed so much from the days when that would have been considered your prime years. He's probably not even reached his prime years yet. I get the sense often that he's very committed, very dedicated, and very determined to succeed. And I think we're going to see a lot more from him, which would be great because, you know, we've had so many outstanding Scottish players, and some of the best players in the game are still Scottish. Guys like John Higgins, Stephen Maguire. But we haven't really seen a Scottish player break through to become one of the very best since, I don't know, maybe Graham Dot, And that's almost 20 years ago now. I know McGill did get into the top 16. He was never in that sort of top eight, top 10 bracket. I think Donaldson's got the potential to do that. But I do feel if it's going to happen, it's going to have to happen in the next few seasons. And uh, I think this could be the time when it really does for him.
1: One player I'm interested to see how he kicks on now is Karen Wilson. Obviously, he's already a top player. Uh, he's won tournaments. But he's also... I don't like the term nearly man, but he has been in quite a few finals and not won them. Um, obviously the world final recently, but he was in the masters final. He was in the champion champions final, both close matches, um, a couple of other finals. I think he's been in eight ranking finals, won three. Um, so he's obviously very good at going deep in tournaments. It's just, it's just nailing that final, uh, that final match. Now I think that he will start to win events because I think the thing with Karen is he is always looking to improve I don't think he would have been satisfied just to get to the final of the World Championship. He wants to win it, and that's a good attitude to have. But he's got to kind of get going again. I mean, it was a a hugely emotional experience, of course, to get to the World Final. It's not that long, really, to get over it. He's going to be in very reduced circumstances, of course, playing uh, behind closed doors in Milan-Keynes. But has to get get back to work again. And I think I, I do think, you know, he's you mentioned Trump and I agree. I expect him to win the world championship again. I do think Karen Wilson is a future winner of that tournament. No what you can never say for certain, you really can't, because we don't know. I just think his mentality and his attitude is good. And I think this season will be interesting. If he can win tournaments along the way, then he goes there with that confidence and that belief that he can actually win the biggest tournament.
2: One thing we're all guilty of as commentators in all sports, when we see a bit of emotion from a player after they've won or lost, we use that cliche, and you can see what it means to us. We all do it. But it's really, really true with Karen Wilson. We saw it after he lost the Masters final. We saw it when he won the semi-final of the World Championship. But I feel sometimes he almost wants it a bit too much and I get a bit of a sense of that in the World Championship final, actually, that times he had he, he built it up a little too much in his head and it affected the way he started the first day, it affected the way he played for a lot of the second day. So I feel that's something he needs to look at. And, you know, you've said he's made a habit of losing finals. Now, some of them have been close. You think of the Champion of Champions final that he lost, that was certainly close. But he's had a few really heavy defeats in finals. I love the line he came out with when he was heavily beaten by Ding in the final in China. Uh, He said that the journey back to the airport was longer than the match itself, (laughs) which it actually was. So he's had a few heavy defeats in finals. And, okay, I mean, you could look at the defeat he had in the open final against O'Sullivan and say O'Sullivan produced one of the best performances we've ever seen in a final. You wouldn't say that about the world final. Nowhere near it, actually. So it's something he needs to look at that maybe he just wanted a little too much. Perhaps he needs to remind himself he's only 28. He's still got time to do it. As I was saying with Scott Donson, who's 26. Ages like that are actually still relatively young for snooker players nowadays. So maybe just needs to be a bit more patient with himself and give him a bit more time because I think he's going to be around as a contender for these big titles, including the World Championship, for about another 10, 15 years. So he's got time on his side. just needs to be a little bit more patient and perhaps go easy on himself. That, of course, is just my perception looking at him. He might say he's not like that at all, but that's certainly how it appears to me.
1: OK, and uh, in general, I mean, I, I don't know what you think, but I don't sense there's going to be any great shifting of the guard. It's going to be the, the usual suspects, you think, winning tournaments. You expect Neil Robertson to come good. Mark Selby will probably come good. Sean Murphy, these sort of guys, Mark Allen, they're going to be certainly competing in semifinals and finals, winning tournaments, um, because they're the best players. Simple as that. You know, the flat draw system where everyone comes in the first round has revealed who the best players are. Um, it will be nice to see a few new names come through, but really, you th- I don't know what you think, but I think that again, the tournaments will be dominated by pretty much the same old faces, probably with a couple of players coming good for the first time as well.
2: Yeah, yeah I do agree with that. I think there are a few players in particular will be interested to see how they do. Someone like John Higgins, you wonder, he's still a fantastic player, but he's just slipping off the pace a little bit. Now, we've seen him do that a few times in recent years and get back on track by doing well at the World Championship. Didn't happen for him this year. So you wonder how much longer uh, he can go on. And, you know, you say that, it almost sounds like I'm writing him off. I'm not at all. I'm just saying I'm going to be interested to see if he's still got it in him. Then you look at the players like Mark Williams, Ding Junhui, Still really good players on their days, but they're so in and out. Now, with Ding, it can be tournament to tournament. I mean, he can be struggling, then suddenly win something, uh, or vice versa. With Mark, it seems to be in stages. Uh, with Mark Williams, he'll have a great season, then a not-so-great season. One or two signs recently that he's got his, um, his mojo back. He put up a very good showing. Probably really, <coughs> would say, should have knocked him Sullivan out of the World Championship. So he could be right back up there again. He's down at 10 in the rankings now. Obviously, all his points for winning the 2018 World Championship have come off. But I wouldn't be greatly surprised to see him get back up there. And then other guys like, you know, Yan Bing Tao, who's an established top 16 player now. But, you know, we feel there may be more to come from him. Uh, Jack lazowski he's been threatening to win tournaments for a while now. It still hasn't happened. And if you keep going like that, you know, for too long, you start maybe to drop off the pace a bit. So uh, he's another player I'd be interested to see. And Dave Gilbert as well. still number 11 in the rankings. But he had a pretty dismal run, actually, after a decent enough start to last season. He hardly won a match, really, after that in the ranking events. I know he had a good run in the Masters, but really the last six or seven ranking events of the season, he hardly showed up at all. So he's another player who we were talking a lot about this time last year as a potential tournament winner of the near future. I think you would be less optimistic on on that front now. So we'll see if there's any revival from him.
1: It's hard, I think, to sort of pick out what the real highlights will be for the season, just because... It could be that a lot of the season is played in the same venue, which means the tournaments, you can call them whatever you want, but they feel the same. It's not like, you know, you go to Belfast for the North Island Open, it has a a sort of character of its own. Well, obviously, it's not going to have that if it's played in Milton Keynes, where they've had the English Open and the European Masters. It's not impossible, I think, the UK Championship could be played there, depending on what happens uh, in the UK. You know, obviously, the restrictions have become more strict again in, in recent times. So... It's hard to say. I mean, even the Masters, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in January, but if that's played behind closed doors, it won't feel the same. But I go back to what I said at the start of the discussion. It's great that these tournaments are on because, you know, players have a chance to earn a living, snooker fans have a chance to watch the snooker, um, and we all have a chance to participate in the sport. I think we're in a stronger position, arguably, than a lot of other sports at the moment. Um, but it's going to be strange, isn't it? And, and, and I guess all we can do is hope that things sort of turn around. And certainly by the time of the World Championship, we're kind of back to normal at the Crucible.
0: Yeah,
2: that's what we're all, hoping. and you know, I, th- I think a lot of people sort of, you know, assume things are going to go back to normal uh, in the near future, we all hope they do, but it- it's like when we're talking about restarting the Premier League football season and getting it completed, I think a lot of that was assuming that everything was going to be back to normal when we headed into the n- new season and into full crowds and stadiums again, but obviously that isn't the case, so this could be around a, a long time to come. I don't think we'll be back to complete normal by the World Championship in society. Whether we'll be you know, in a sufficient position to have a full crowd at the Crucible, we, we just don't know. But as I was saying, this is the only show in town for now. I think watching these tournaments over the last few months, it hasn't been as different as you might have expected it to be uh, in the absence of the crowd. I think it's, I mean, the World Championship was still pretty much as enjoyable as ever. So we've just got to, Get on and make the best of it, and uh, you know, let, let's just hope that uh, Milton Keynes manages to avoid one of those local lockdowns that have been uh, <laughs> of late.
1: absolutely, then we will be in trouble. Well, okay, well, that's um, that's the new season, as I say. You can let us know your thoughts on anything that's been discussed, or indeed anything full stop, snooker scene podcast at mail.com, that's snooker scene podcast at mail.com, and also if you listen on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy the podcast, if you could leave us a review because that that uh, points other people towards it we have some nice ones on there Um, so if that that is something that you want to do uh, feel free the new season as you listen to this is underway it's going to be there's plenty of tournaments to watch there's plenty of tournaments to play in it feels all a bit strange I know because of the situation but as we say hopefully things will turn around bottom line is snooker remains a great sport we're all very happy that we're continuing I hope you enjoy firstly the championship league and the podcast will return very soon